0: And thinking about the way God's called us to, to steward things and what he's called us to do, I began to ask myself the question, why? Why Why would I steward relationships in a particular way? And and how does God motivate me to live the life that he's called me to live in the way that he's called me to live it, in particular in relationships? And why would I do it? I, I began to ask myself in contemplating this topic, the why questions. And And when asking myself why, I saw in Scripture... This motivation that God uses from our own desire to be happy. How many of you guys want to be happy? Anybody? Come on. You're, half of you said yes, and half of you lied. How many? How many of you guys want to be happy? God. God did something in us that that caused us to want to be happy. We we desire to be blessed. We desire to be happy. We desire to live a life that has fulfillment in it. And and so God, in in understanding how He made us, has has created life in such a way and has asked us to steward what he's given us in such a way that, that causes us to, first of all, glorify him, which is most important. And in that, it adds value and happiness to our own lives. Amen? He, he's smart. He knows what he's doing. And, and as I looked at that, as I look at this series we're about to embark on, the Stewardship of Life series, I thought of Psalm 1. And if you'll turn to Psalm 1 with me, I don't have it on a slide, but I want you to take a look at it. Actually, as I was thinking, I've been thinking about this passage for quite a while, and for Christmas, I got a coffee mug with Psalm 1 on it, which is kind of nice. I'll bring it to work and drink coffee out of it, but um, it's on the side of my coffee mug now that I'm bringing to work. But in particular, this verse or this passage talks about the blessed man. It talks about what it means really to be happy. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Look at this picture. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And, and as we think about this series over the next four weeks, I want you to contemplate this picture with me. I want you to picture the tree that we see in Psalm 1 that's planted by the streams of water, whose roots go deep down, that draw life from the water that it's so close to. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Because I believe as we talk about what the Bible says in regard to stewardship of life, the commands and the the things that compel us to act a particular way, in the way that we steward our resources, in the way that we steward our time, in the way that we steward our giftings, in the way that we steward our relationships, The things that the Bible compels us to do are not always going to be the thing intellectually that you want to do. Does that make sense? And yet you see the picture of this tree, the blessed man. And you ask yourself, how can I be happy? How can I be blessed? How can I live life in such a way? That I glorify God and it adds value to me. And, and don't this is not a this is not a unreasonably selfish thing to ask. Think about it. What does God say? I'm going to read a passage in a moment from Luke 10. That's throughout the entire Bible. But as the law, lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him how to fulfill the law, what does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as what? What does God assume in our motivation? That you love yourself. Self-love is not self-esteem. Self-love is assumed in the Bible. Self-love is something that God intuitively understands all of us do. I am more concerned about my uh, warmth, about my hunger, about my shelter, and about my um, ability to be in a particular uh, level of comfort than I am anyone else's. And, and, and if you if you argue that and you say, well, well some people don't love themselves, what about those Who are masochistic or those who kill themselves. Well, even, even in contemplating the motivation of that, it's what? To end, to end a particular amount of suffering, isn't it? To do that or, or to derive some sort of twisted pleasure out of hurting yourself. There's, there is an assumed biblical self-love. And what God says in his, in his word is to love your neighbor as he already knows you love yourself. Let the way that you love yourself be the measure by which you give love to others and care for them. So we have this desire to be happy. We have this desire to be satisfied. And we see this picture of the tree planted by a stream of water. And I love this picture, and I think that we can contemplate this picture as we go through this entire series, because we see its roots underneath the ground that are deep and that draw life from this water that it's nearby, and it, and it gains strength from that. But what, what do you see about this picture? You don't see a tree that is, is immune to the elements, right? This tree potentially goes through harsh winters. This tree potentially goes through dry, dry summers. This tree potentially goes through incredible storms and wind and rain and all sorts of difficulty, and it could be blown and, and rained on and snowed on and frozen and scorched under the sun, but where does it get its life from? Underneath the ground, where the roots go deep into the water, and as you see in Psalm 1, it's from what? The Word of God. The Word of God. The righteous. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers, or I'm sorry, of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And he's like that tree planted by the streams of water. No matter what's going on in the outside, no matter what the conditions are, no no matter what the circumstances are, that tree is enabled... Is, is able to stand because its roots go deep under the ground and reach into the, into the source of life, which is the word of God or the water in this picture. Does that make sense? So what do we see? What can we draw from that as we think about stewardship of life? What we can draw from that is this. that that the word of God is the thing that causes us to stand strong and be blessed. Doing what God has called us to do, doing the right thing, living for Jesus, is the thing that enables you to stand. It's it's your roots going deep down underneath towards the source of life. Think about it this way. The quickest way to not be happy is to make the sole object of your affection happiness. If your sole desire is to be happy. Guess what you're not going to be? Happy. If your sole purpose in life and, and the thing that you measure everything by is, is, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. And your, your pursuit is happiness. You will not find happiness. It's the quickest way not to be happy. But if your sole pursuit is the word of God, and your roots go down deep, and your desire is to live life the way God has designed it to be lived, to live life in light of the gospel, to glorify him, you'll be that blessed man or woman. Amen? Amen? To be that tree is to be firmly planted, by the streams of water. So as we contemplate stewardship of life, as we contemplate what it means to be someone who stewards their life according to the word of God to glorify God in everything that you do, that that's that really the goal is for us to be men and women who are like this tree. The goal is for us to be blessed. The goal is for us to be planted firmly and rooted down deep next to the streams of water that really give life and not to live a life in the empty pursuit of things that just make me happy or things that I think are just going to make me happy but to live in the pursuit of Jesus, to live in the pursuit of the word of God and understanding who he is and drawing closer to him. And then then a byproduct of that is to be a blessed person. Amen? I think that's a good mindset for us to come into this series with. The pursuit of happiness is the quickest way not to be happy. But the pursuit of Jesus and the word of God and doing what he's called us to do. Is the quickest way to be blessed. I want you to turn with me to Romans 13 8. One of the most precious things for us to steward wisely is our relationships. And Romans spends a lot of time through chapter 12 walking through, walking through relationships and walking through. Uh, as Paul describes in Romans chapter twelve, how we are to love one another, how we're not to return evil for evil, how we're to how we're to honor, how we're to to pursue um, out loving the, your brother, how you're to pursue out honoring your brother, and and then he goes into Romans thirteen verse eight, and he says this: Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let me read that again: Romans thirteen eight. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we just thank you for your love toward us and how you've called us to love each other. Father, we thank you for primarily the way you've demonstrated what it means to love in your unconditional, agape love towards us. Help us to grasp that even more tonight and to somehow allow that the, the truth of your scripture, your love toward us, to transform our hearts and to, and to compel us to love each other in the same way that you've loved us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So part of Living life the way God has designed it to live in light of the gospel to glorify Him is to love each other. It's to love each other in a particular way, and and it's interesting because when you say the word love, and I think I've probably mentioned this before in front of you, but I, I think it's a interest interesting phenomenon because it's one of the most overused words in the world, right? Um, you say, "I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches," and I love my mother, all in the same all in the same sentence, right? Um, I I love I love um Cafe Kubal. I do another plug for Cafe Kubal. And and I love and I love my children. Um it, it's 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 a similarly phrased thing. We use the word love and some people uh many times love can be described um or be defined when through your brain um in in the context of your circumstances and in, in in the things you've experienced in your life. Isn't that true? I mean, many times you hear the word love and it hits your brain and it registers through all the synapses in your brain and all your experiences and all your circumstances and what you've known growing up. And, and it pumps out a definition that, how many of you know, isn't consistent with what God says love is. And so God wants us to understand love in the way that he understands it to be. And, and you see it in 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's patient. It's kind, it's long suffering, it doesn't hold an account of wrong. Love is not just some emotion, it's not just a feeling of wow, I love her, but it's a it's a it's a compelled um, disposition. Love is love is really a disposition of the heart before it's an action, right? Love is something that that occurs within your heart that you, you have a disposition of love that results in actions of love towards other people because of what's already inside of you. Amen? And, and the Bible is, is wrought with scripture that talks about really love being the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Where, where, where God loved us and we're to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and in Luke 10, we see a description of that, and I'll get to it in a moment. But here we see in Romans chapter 13 this interesting concept of debt. We see, owe no one anything. You got that slide up there? Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, Romans 13, 8. And so as I looked at this passage, as I looked at this verse about loving others and in the context of stewarding our relationships, I see that this this verse really is talking about believers and non-believers both. Many times we can talk about how has God called us in the stewardship of our relationship in our relationships to love each other as those within the church and to love others outside of the church and is there differences between that but we see in this passage in Romans 13:8 that he's talking about everybody oh no one nobody anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law what does this mean does this mean we're to never be in debt to anybody right that's the first thing I think of should I not borrow money to get a house Right, And I know some people have used this, this verse wrongly in that way. That's not what this is talking about. What this verse is talking about is if you have debts, you pay them with love. Every commentator seems to be consistent with the fact that you pay your debt with love. You, you do everything out of love. You consistently act in a loving disposition towards other people no matter what. And for those who love another, you've fulfilled the law. I want to go to the next passage because I think we need this next passage to base our lives on to understand how we're supposed to do that. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You may ask yourself, how, how do I steward my relationships in love? How, do I love? how do I love in the way that I pay my debts? How do I love um, those who don't know Jesus? How do I love Family members, how do I love my wife? How do I love my kids? How do I steward these relationships that God's giving me in a loving way, in the context of love, with a disposition that's loving? And the only way to do that is to understand and to build your life on Romans 5.8. To understand somehow that while I was still a sinner, God showed his love in this, that when I was still a sinner, he died for me. When I think about stewardship of relationships, I recognize that I'm completely incapable of this. I recognize that in my sin, I'm incapable of treating people the way they should be treated. I recognize that in my sin, I'm selfish, and I get angry, and I'm short, not physically, although I am, but I can be short towards people. I can lash out. I cannot desire to be inconvenienced by the need to show love to someone else and my desire towards my own convenience and comfort. So how do I, how does my life begin to change? How does my heart begin to become transformed in such a way that my my actual disposition is different. Because I'm incapable of having a conscious ability to act appropriately towards others at every moment. It needs to come out of who I am. Something inside of me needs to change. My disposition, my makeup needs to change and continually become more and more loving and compassionate towards other people. And how does that happen? And I believe the only way for us as a church to be a loving people, the way God has called us to steward our relationships and love each other, is for us to understand Romans 5.8. It's for us to keep the cross of Jesus Christ in front of us. It's for us, as CJ Mahaney says, to preach the gospel to yourself every day, to somehow come to grips with the with the moment. Where you recognize the God of the universe while you weren't even looking for Him, while you had no desire for Him, while you were in the midst of your sin and rebellion and selfishness, He died for you because He loves you. And does that affect your life? Does that affect your heart? Does it affect my heart? Has it done something inside of me that makes me go, oh my goodness? And has it begun to change my disposition in such a way that when I see others, they don't, I don't owe them anything, as Romans 13, 8 talks about this debt. I don't owe them. They don't deserve love. But I owe everything to Jesus. And Jesus can never be repaid because grace is free. And so I pay Jesus back by loving them. I owe nobody anything except to love one another because I owe Christ everything. Amen? Do you see how Romans 5, 8 and Romans 13 work together in this relationship? I know I always go back to this picture in Romans, or I'm sorry, in John 13, but in the context of this message, I can't help it because, and if you've heard me say this before, just just maybe look at this picture again with me because this is a picture in Scripture that has affected my understanding personally of the gospel in a way that I begin to get the why question. Why would I do this? And it's that moment, right, in John 13, when Jesus is in the upper room and he walks over to the, to the poor guy whose job it is to wash everybody's feet at the door and it's the servant that, that most of these guys probably didn't even relate to, probably never talked to. They would just stick their foot in the bucket, let them wash it, and they'd go in and lounge and eat, right? This isn't the guy they, they interacted with. It wasn't someone they spoke to. It wasn't someone they had a relationship with. And here Jesus walks over, and he grabs the towel, and he gets down on his knee, and he asks the disciples to come towards him. And Peter has this reaction. No way! Right? Do you remember this? Peter looks at Jesus, and he says, Absolutely not. He has this this almost, as you see it written in scripture, guttural reaction to Jesus taking this place of a servant and grabbing the towel, and he's like, "You're the rabbi. You're the teacher." Absolutely not. No way. And Jesus looks at him and says, "If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me." Right. And then Peter reacts and says, "Well, then wash, wash all of me." And what is this? This is a picture, Jesus, settling the argument that we see in other passages that tell us about the same moment in time, settling the argument among them about who's the greatest, right? And he says, I'm going to show you who the greatest is. And what he's depicting for them is he's depicting for Peter a, a, a picture of a greater service to come because he's about to go to the cross and become the most despicable sight in the history of the world as he becomes sin for everybody. And he's saying to Peter, you need to let me wash your feet. And Peter's saying, no way. It can't be you on your knees at this door holding a towel wiping the feces animal feces from my feet you can't be the one who does that and Jesus looks at Peter and he says if you don't let me do it you have no part in me what is he saying He's explaining to him what's about to happen in the gospel. If you don't let me serve you in this way, then you have no part in me. And folks, we have to come to grips with the fact that we were filthy, that we're dirty. We're so much lower than him, yet the God of the universe got off his throne and got down on his knee and grabbed a towel and came to wash your feet. And he says, if you don't let me serve you in this way, you have no part in me. And what should be our reaction? No way. We should feel like Peter, right? No. You can't be the one who does this. You can't be the one who washes my feet. Yet if you don't allow him to be the servant Lord in your life, you have no part in him. And I don't believe there's a human being sucking oxygen on the planet who can come face to face with the grace of God and the reality of what he's done for them, and walk away unchanged, and walk away without being compelled or without having the disposition of their heart begin to change, and then begin to love others in the same way. But I don't think we can talk about stewarding our relationships properly and loving others the way we're supposed to love others until the disposition of our heart changes. And the disposition of our heart doesn't change until we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So as I've talked for a long time already, really my first point is this. To steward our relationships the way God wants us to, we need to get the gospel. We need to get... Close to the cross of Jesus Christ we need, to, we need to Get the cross and the gospel Of Jesus Christ in front of our face Over and over and over and over again Every single day we need to be looking at it We need to be reading about it We need to be praying about it We need to be understanding it Not that God died for everyone But that God died for you Jesus died for you and he loves you And while you were still a sinner He showed his love to you By dying for you And then in response to that, you owe no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We are not indebted to every single other human being on the planet, but we're indebted to Christ. We can't pay Jesus back for his grace because grace is free. But what we can do is live a life owing everybody else nothing but love. And in turn, not paying him back, but paying others for what he's done for us. Amen? Does that make sense? So in the stewarding of our relationships, there needs to be in our hearts as Christians, as a renovation church, a disposition of love. Something about our hearts that changes us and causes us to love. 1 John 4.11 says it this way, and I think I have a slide on that. beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, now who is the one another's? I mean, this is interesting to think about. I mean, as the Bible describes the love of one another, and as you see later on in John 13, 35, what does it say? Jesus says to them, they will know your disciples by this. What? What? The fact that you don't go see bad movies, the fact that you don't drink too much, the fact that you, um, I don't know, whatever the do's and don'ts are that you have is that list in your mind of what Christians are supposed to do or not supposed to do, he doesn't mention any of that. He says, they'll know you're my disciples by this, your love for one another. How do people get to know that we've been transformed by the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ? They get to know that and they get to see that by the way we react and act towards others. How do you love your spouse? How do you love your kids? How do you love your co-workers? How do you love the people closest to you and the people that you interact with every day? Nothing flies in the face of the gospel more than when believers act act. Not patiently, not kindly, not lovingly towards the other people around them. Does that make sense? I think the biggest challenge for us, I know for me, as I reflect and get introspective. As we we get into the Word together tonight, get introspective. Think, Think about your own life. As I think about my own life, I have to ask myself this question. What do the people closest to me think about my love? Right? Sometimes it's easier to be perceived as loving towards those at a distance. Right? But what about the people that know you the best? What about the people in your own house? What about the people in my own house? Is there a disposition of my heart that's loving towards them? And what does it mean? to be loving. Does it mean to be smiley? Does it mean to be fake? No. What, what, what does my genuine love look like to the people in my own home? Am I living to out-honor and out-serve them, as Romans 12 says? Am I living to love them like I love myself? Am I living in such a way that I'm concerned for your comfort? I'm concerned for whether or not you fed or whether or not you're happy or whether or not you're living your life in such a way that, that value is being added to it? Do I live to serve my wife in such a way that her life is 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 living to its full potential and she's experiencing the comfort and everything that she needs? Am I looking to her like I'm looking to myself? Because what the word of God says in loving your neighbor as yourself is the measure of your love towards others is what would you give yourself? Amen? Am I living to outserve my wife? Am I living to make sure she's got what she needs? My children have what they need. Do I live sacrificially towards them? And so, how is this counterintuitive? How do I relate this back to Psalm 1? What do we always say when we're acting and behaving selfishly? I just want to be happy. I want the donut which is what I usually say, right? There's one headlight left. How many love headlights? Come on. Thank you. <laughs> and there's one headlight left. And, and I see it. And, and as I see my six-year-old walking towards the Dunkin' Donuts box that's almost empty and the one headlight is sitting there, I do, I begin to say to myself, he's going to take the last headlight. Now, I physically can move him out of the way and get that headlight, and eat it, and sometimes I've done that, but the reality is, it's a terrible analogy, but here's here's what I'm getting at. The most miserable people in the world selfishly every day make the decision towards their own happiness. I want, I want, I want, but the blessed man lives to serve others. I had a college professor in Bible school say he was clinically depressed until he realized living life for other people made him happy and he no longer needed the medication that was required for his depression. And the Word of God says it the same way, really. God has called us to live with others in mind, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And in doing that, in living the life of the servant who sacrificially loves the other to the measurement that he loves himself, You experience that joy that goes beyond your capability to understand. You you experience what it means to be the blessed man or woman. You experience what it means to truly live a life that that God adds value to. But as you strive for, I I heard someone say it at work the other day, in the midst of an affair and in the midst of divorce, I heard two people talking in in an office nearby mine. And the one girl said to the other woman who's having an affair and about to leave her husband, well, you just need to be happy. Right? How many times have you heard that? you just need to be happy. It's really about your happiness. And the first thing I thought of was was Psalm 1. Man, is this the quickest way to to be miserable? (laughs) Is this the quickest way not to be happy? Because the source of life is the Word of God. The source of life that is going to cause you to stand and be blessed is doing things the way God has called you to do them. And sometimes it's counterintuitive. It doesn't feel like it's going to make you happy. But Jeremiah describes it like this. It's those who have experienced the, the water of life going back to cisterns of dirt and drinking from the cistern of dirt. And we do that so often. When we have the, the, the John 4 living water that causes us to never thirst again, how many times in the name of our own happiness and in the name of our own selfishness do we scramble back to a cistern of dirt to drink from? We we have the source of living water that will cause us to never thirst again. And as we pursue that, as we pursue Jesus and living in light of the gospel and living for others, responding to his love and loving others, you're going to experience something. It's called joy, real joy that goes beyond your ability to to understand or comprehend. Lastly, Luke 10. And I'm just going to end with this. He said to him, What is written in the law, how do you read it? He's speaking to the lawyer who has come and questioned to him. He says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And if you recall the story, the lawyer says to him, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell the story of the good Samaritan. And I love that Jesus picks the guy that this lawyer hates. Right? He picks the Samaritan. In the mind of this Jewish lawyer, this Samaritan would, was a half-breed. This Samaritan was someone who worshipped an idol. This Samaritan was someone who, who was a heretic, and who he would have walked around the entire country rather than walk through Samaria. And Jesus tells the story of the man who falls Pray to thieves and is left beaten and, and dead. And the priest goes by and the Levite goes by and, and nobody helps him. But who helps him? The Samaritan. And what, he, what Jesus does in the life of this lawyer who's asking him how to fulfill the law and, and gives the correct answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus does is he picks the person that the lawyer hates the most and says, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. Folks, the gospel of Jesus Christ should compel us to love, have a disposition of love towards those who are opposed to us, right? Guys, this we have failed at this as a church. We have failed to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God outflowing from our lives towards people that would seemingly oppose stances that we take about how people should live their lives. Am I right? Come on, is this not true? We have failed at this. We failed at this when it comes to politics and, and people that disagree with us. We failed at this when it comes to, to people who, who oppose what Scripture says about sexuality. We failed at this when it comes to uh, how we believe, uh, how you potentially might believe in light of the Word of God towards life. We failed at this in so many ways. And, and I keep asking myself as I see Christians Shouting people down and and, and cursing them. I keep asking myself, when did Jesus change the hate rule? Right? Is this the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who's your neighbor? Who has God called you to love? Does that mean we don't believe what God says about things? Of course not. But we believe it with humility because we understand that apart from the grace of God, I'm destined and it's just that I be separated from him for eternity. That somehow God in Romans 5.8 invaded my life when I was still a sinner and he died for me. Not because I did anything, not because I intuitively was so much smarter than everybody else that I figured it out. No, because he reached into the mess of my life and he saved me when I didn't deserve it and when I I wasn't even looking for it. So how then in turn could I look at someone else who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't have the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their life so they don't live a particular way and, 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 and target them with hate? Does that make any sense in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The church of Jesus Christ should be the most humble, loving group of people that exists because we recognize Romans 5.8. And we need to steward the relationships with those outside the church in such a way that we demonstrate an unconditional love. We don't, we don't bend in terms of what we believe to be true, but we believe it to be true with humility and grace and with an understanding that we didn't deserve the gospel that we received. Amen? We should be the first ones to love and I've got to be honest, we, we, we pick and choose who we love and who we hate in the church, don't we? So we? We have no problem, in light of the Good Samaritan, we have no problem loving our Hindu neighbor or loving our Jewish neighbor, but we hate our homosexual neighbor, right? God's called us and compels us through the gospel of Jesus Christ to demonstrate the kind of love towards others that he's demonstrated towards us. And we can allow then the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the life of somebody who he invades and who he begins to save. And we can come alongside them, not as someone standing in front of them pointing into their face, but as as someone saved by grace standing alongside them and pointing towards Christ. Amen? How many times do we cut off their nose to spite our face? How many times do we... What's the old uh, Hindu proverb that you cut off their nose to get them to smell your rose? God, I don't know where I got that from. I think it's Hindu. I better stop. I'm way off my notes. It's a weird place to end, but that's where I'm going to end. I think the most important thing for us to grasp tonight as we close in song, and I'll invite the band now, is... If you find that the disposition of your heart is not bent towards loving others, then we have a gospel problem. Each of us, I believe, needs to scramble back to Romans 5.8. Each of us needs to scramble back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and just get in front of the cross. And let the sparks of the cross kind of fall off onto you like a, like a like a fire, like a campfire. And just keep that thing in front of you till it begins to light up something in your heart that changes your disposition. As you begin to recognize that Peter John 13 moment. No. Allow God to do something in your heart as you begin to recognize His great love towards you. Allow God to do something in your heart that changes you, that changes me, that enables us to look at others, whether it be those closest or those farthest away, but look at others with a disposition of love. And I'm going to close with this because I think this is important for a church plant. It's important for any church, but we recognize it in the context of a church plant, of a group of people that have come together under the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, we believe in this mission and we believe God's called us to serve this community so that every man, woman, and child has a repeated opportunity to hear, see, taste the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives in this location, in this geography. The quickest way for the mission to be thwarted or to be stopped is for us to be unloving towards each other. And so let me say this to you. If you're a member of Renovation Church or if you're contemplating being a part of this church, can we commit to give each other the benefit of doubt? Can we commit to have a disposition of love towards each other? Because as we interact together on mission, we're going to tick each other off. We're going to have moments of disagreement. We're going to have moments. and, And here should be our commitment to each other. I love you more than I love being right. Can we do that? Because it's so easy to watch. How many of you seen churches just ravaged through pride and, and selfishness? And, and I'm right and you're wrong and I'm out of here and people leaving. And, 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 and what I've noticed through years of church ministry is, is for some reason, Christians have a hard time, which boggles my mind in light of the gospel, of giving each other the benefit of the doubt or caring or loving for each other more than they love being right about a particular issue. As we steward our relationships, let's steward these relationships rightly. Let's come to each other in love. Let's speak truth in love. Let's allow others to speak into our lives truth in love and not react. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you, through your word, speak to us. Regardless of who happens to be up here speaking, you speak to us, God, through your word. You've revealed your word to us. Primarily, God, you've revealed that you love us and that your love for us wasn't based on our performance, but it was based on your choice. And we're so grateful for that tonight. Draw us closer to that, help us to steward each other wisely. In the context of love, in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.